this Saturday night, I don't remember, something like that, because I think I missed church the next morning. Um, Saturday night, we're just hanging out. We're kind of just laying on our bed, you know, all crossways. Uh, you know, the boys were like five or eight, somewhere around there. And uh, they had, at the time, they were staying in the same room, they had bunk beds. And uh, <clears throat> Karen had said, it was getting late, it was Saturday night, because we were talking about that get up in the morning in the church, you know. She said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go make sure the boys are in bed. So I thought, whatever, I kind of faded out. And I heard this enormous crash, you know, and man, I, you know, that instant, away. My adrenaline was sky high. Uh, my, my concern was sky high. And I, I flew out of our bedroom door. The voice of the bedroom door was directly across the, the way, and the door was closed. And I pushed open the door, and I, and I thought, when I, when I heard the noise, I woke up, and I thought, one of the boys has fallen off the bunk bed. Um, and if I were to pick one of the boys to have fallen off the bunk bed, who would that have been? <laughs> right, you're all with me, Christopher. Um, <laughs> And it wouldn't probably have been falling off. You, know, you get my meaning? Like, <laughs> like some, some plan has been hatched and it's gone terribly awry. Um, and so I opened the door and both boys are standing there looking at me. They're like, what happened? What happened? And uh, I think it's Christopher said, Mom fell down. And I turned around and Karen was laying in the hallway. Uh, her head had smashed through the sheetrock on the wall and she had fallen in the hallway there. Eyes wide open and not responsive at all. And uh, it's the second time in my life that as I moved towards her and I, and I hit my knees, I mean, I just hit my knees next to her. And I began to speak her name. It's the second time in my life that my lips literally peeled back in terror. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It's it's weird. They talk about it in movies. They talk about it in literature. Um, I never understood what it was. I had it happen to me one time in a, another circumstance that was completely a spiritual arena in which it happened. Uh, maybe I'll tell you that story sometime. Uh, but this was this was a physical response. I was and I was terrified. <clears throat> I hit the floor, started speaking to her. She was not responding. Uh, the boys came around and. She's laying here, I'm standing here, and they're on the other side, and I'm looking at them, and I see this fear in their eyes. And uh, Stephen is saying, call 911, call 911, call 911. I'm like, you gotta get a phone. So I go find the phone. Um, and we hadn't been in the house for a long time, so stuff was kind of a disarray. And he ran through the house and came back and he said, I can't find the phone. And, and then I looked at Christopher, and he's covering his face like this. It was, it was a weird moment because I knew exactly what was happening because something similar had happened to me when I was a kid. Uh, I was about 11 and my mother choked on a, a bone and could not breathe. Uh, and it was pretty scary for a couple of minutes. And I couldn't stop. I, my nervous reaction to it was, was to laugh. And I felt so ashamed of that in the aftermath and kind of got a little bit shamed by the family, you know, because it seemed weird, right? I learned later, of course, as an adult, that sometimes you, these emotions come up and you just can't, you don't know how they're gonna come out sometimes. They're just like weird, man. Your brain is 
is disconnected. The, the circuit board that's in there is now starting to fire in all kinds of weird directions. You know how it's going to come out. And so I looked at Christopher and he's covering his face like this and I said, are you smiling? And he nodded his head and I just reached out and I took his hand down and said, it's okay. You're scared. And sometimes that's how it comes out and we don't quite about it. It's okay. You're scared. And then we finally found a phone somewhere and called the paramedics came and then Karen began to wake up. And at the end, there was nothing serious wrong. She'd been exhausted. It was her first year back at teaching school. And she'd gotten worn out. She was sick. And just, you know, she, and what had happened is she had stood up. She said, I'm going to go check on the kids. She stood up. She walked out the door. And she got just past the door frame. And she fell. Hit her head on the door frame and put her head through the wall. And, uh, and jammed herself up pretty good. And uh, fortunately, nothing more serious than that. But in that moment, when I turned around, when the boy said, Mom fell. And I turned around, and there she was. Intense, dark fear. Maybe you've had experiences like that. Maybe you've been in an accident. Uh, you've seen, you've seen it. You saw it coming, and you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it's the the life of a loved one. Maybe it's um, circumstances in your life. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's work. Whatever it is. We're talking about things that deserve fear. There are some things that do demand a certain amount of fearful respect, right? So, you know, our, our culture has kind of this uh, weird love affair that I'm not entirely opposed to because I like, I like scary movies, I like scary rides. We, you know, we do things like, uh, uh, you remember the show? What was the name of the show? The Fear in the Time? Anybody going to go with me? Fear Factor. Fear Factor. Man. <laughs> right? The whole show based on convincing people to do things that they would otherwise not ever consider doing. Uh, whether it be a physical uh, expression of something, you know, uh, stunts and taking risks that way, or eating weird food, or being locked in uh, seclusion and things like that. Um, so we make, we make a whole show out of it. Um, we've got, uh, you know, we love haunted houses, scary movies, and, and things like that. Thrill rides. <laughs> Look, and right, and not everybody, not everybody digs all of those things, right? All of these have underneath of them some level of legitimate fear, but they're in controlled circumstances, right? So we kind of get to we kind of get to dance with the fear a little bit, but we subconsciously know it's not really dangerous. It's not really that high risk. You know, a, a place like Disney can't put millions of people through Space Mountain year after year after year successfully without it being pretty much no risk. But we, but we get that rush, we get that, that pump up. And, uh, and then I wonder sometimes if some of that, uh, I'm not sure which side of the point it is, because you know, there are a lot of phobias out there. It's funny, we were talking about this at the birthday party we had for Christopher. Uh, on Friday. He turned 18 yesterday, by the way. Uh, Happy birthday! I don't know how that happened. 
<laughs> yeah, he'll love that. Uh, we're talking about phobias. And, and so I don't know if stuff like Fear Factor and Thrill Rides, if, if our love affair with those kinds of things make the phobias worse, like we have more phobias than ever, or if we created, as humanity, we created things like um, horrible wooden suspension bridges across uh, chasms that why would anybody walk across that and yet people do, if the phobias that we have as a people helped create those kind of things. And so, um, you know, anybody want to take uh, a guess at what the number one phobia is in the United States? Spiders. Spiders, thank you. Um, all right, so now, time to tell the truth. Anyone? Spiders? <coughs> just out? Like Why? What's that? Why? <laughs> spiders. We're talking about spiders. Yeah, how many of you have a phobia to the truth? Anyone? Um, <laughs> oh, okay, just ask. I, I don't know if I have any I don't know if I have any like verified phobias. I mean I'm psychotic about glitter. You, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a phobia or just a significant irritation. I'm not sure which it is. Um, but if I have one, the closest one would be spiders. And I'm okay as long as they don't catch me by surprise. <laughs> but if they catch me by surprise, and they have to be substantial. Um, I, I know some of you will identify with this. Uh, any of you have someone in your house who will come to you and say, there's a gigantic spider in the next room? Right? <laughs> and you're like, I'm like taking out my phone and going, going GPS location, where am I right now? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm still in Alaska. Someone's pet spider must have escaped because there's an enormous spider in the next room because otherwise there's not. We're in Alaska, they're tiny. But there's that fear, right? Uh, it just gets you. Um, ophidiophobia. Somebody said it. Snakes. There are people who have such a severe phobia, fear of snakes, that they will actually avoid certain cities because they believe they have a higher concentration of snakes. You know, like Washington, D.C. <laughs> that was a cheap shot, but it works. Hey, if a bit works, you gotta play it. Um, acrophobia. Anybody? Fear of heights? Yeah, or acrobats. Agoraphobia? Large spaces, crowds. Uh, yeah. Sinophobia. Fear of dogs. Uh, uh, we had a, a very dear friend. Uh, the notes on here says, uh, when you're talking about fear of dogs, you're not talking about like, fear of big dogs. You're talking about fear of dogs. It doesn't matter the size. And uh, we had a really good friend who actually was okay with big dogs, but tiny little dogs completely sent her over. The edge. Why? I don't know. Astrophobia, also called brontophobia, which I would have thought would have been a fear of brontosaurus, but um, it's actually a fear of thunder and lightning. These are the top ten in the United States, by the way. Uh, claustrophobia, you know, fear of small spaces. Mysophobia, fear of germs. Aerophobia, the fear of flying. And uh, number 10 on the list, which is the topic that we were having at the little party the other night, 
And trypophobia, the fear of falls. H O L E S, yes, falls. The fear of falls. It's, and this is the note. I, it's an unusual, but apparently fairly common phobia. Fear of holes. I don't know if that's like, I'm afraid I'm walking down the street and there's going to be a hole. Um, I don't know. But there it is. So I don't know if, I mean, people who have these like genuine phobias, like if you have a real spider phobia, when that, when that happens, that physical reaction and that mental reaction is very much like the response to genuine fear. We call them phobias because in general, they're not really, they're not rational. Uh, there may be some level of risk. I mean, there's a level of risk in being in high places, right? There's a level of risk in being with certain spiders and with certain snakes. There's a level of risk with flying, but our reaction to it sometimes far outpaces the actual risk. And I had, uh, this is what I backtracked from a few minutes ago. I had a whole bunch of uh, kind of cool ideas to throw at you this morning. Um, I've been, you know, I had two weeks off from teaching, so I had time to think about this. Uh, I, you know, I had, could have like nine pages of notes. We could have been here until uh, 12.30 or so. It would have been fantastic, and you would have developed a fear of public speaking as an audience, and uh, you know, one of the things I ran across was that little Pinterest thing that uh, says, uh, don't be afraid, it's used 365 times in the Bible, one for every year, day of the year. Ooh, you see that? It's almost true. Uh, it is used 365 times in the Bible, but only about 110 of those actually apply to the topic of don't be afraid because God is with you and God loves you. And then, the shooting happened in Florida. And I have some people on my Twitter feed that have friends that are students there. And some of their videos began to come through. And I started thinking about what real fear is really like. And I didn't want to be flippant, I didn't want to be trite with this today, and I don't want to bash out that whole topic, I'm just saying. I can share with you probably half a dozen or more other experiences from my own life where I've experienced genuine fear. There's a verse in the Bible that says, uh, it's First John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And when we have these moments like um, what happened in Parkland, what happened in Texas at the small church here several weeks ago, we go all the way back, those of us who were old enough, to places like Columbine, and we think about those terrible things that happened. We, think, we can think about things that happen in our own community, maybe things that happen in your own lives to people that you know. Um, worldwide events, you know, even things on a much larger scale uh, that, that produce genuine fear. 
There's a principle here in this passage that can help us in those times. But I don't want to pretend that that makes it easy. Fear is powerful, and there are circumstances that genuinely should and could provoke fear in us. Uh, this perfect love, this, uh, this place that we can be where perfect love casts out all fear, I don't think means that we can permanently escape the physiological and, and psychological response that we have to a dangerous circumstance that actually warrants our being cautious and being fearful and being on, on guard. I think it does mean that if we will draw close to God, that even in those moments, as disciples and followers of Christ, even though the circumstance warrants genuine, protective fear, we can be people who then also realize that no matter what happens, God is with us. God is with us. There's a little story in Matthew. And right prior to this, uh, God, uh, Jesus had performed a handful of miracles. The disciples had seen him do some amazing things right prior to this little event that happens right here. Uh, and they'd been traveling with him now for a while. They'd seen him do lots of stuff. They'd been hearing his teaching. They'd, they'd understood many of the things that he was trying to say about the kingdom of heaven and how uh, that related to them and what God was trying to do with humanity and what his mission was going to be in life. He's, he spoke to them about so many of these things. And so um, he's uh, right immediately before this, he's healed people. In fact, here's the deal. Jesus is like wiped out. He's tired. Uh, he's, he's been busy with the people. He's been among the people that giving of himself physically and emotionally and spiritually and healing people and, and doing miracles. And then this happens to say so. Uh, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And you've probably heard this story before. Uh, and it's one of my favorites because it, it does tell me so much about uh, God's perspective and then reaction to the storms in our lives, the things that may bring us genuine fear. Uh, and our first impression might be that uh, what this tells us in this verse, verse is that God doesn't care that he's asleep, which is exactly what the disciples uh, thought, because here's what happened. It says, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Another version of this uh, story, they, they wake up and they say, Do you not care that we're about to die? Now, They've, they've just watched him reach out into the masses and heal the sick, you know, cure the blind, uh, make the lame to walk, open deaf ears. He's feeding people when there's no obvious source of real food or enough food to feed people. He's, he's doing all of these things. He's been speaking to them, although we have so much recorded in the Gospels, 
we don't get every conversation recorded that Jesus ever said, but here's what we, we've got to know. I mean, his purpose here is to, to, to bring these disciples to a place where they're going to take the gospel after the resurrection and the ascension, and they're going to spread it into the corners of the earth. And so every day, Jesus is talking to them about the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, about being obedient servants, and all these things that we find recorded in the scripture, where we get a little snapshot of a day here and a day there. But this is the in and out, everyday thing of what they're doing. And yet, here they are going, dude, don't you care? How can you sleep right now when we need you so much? Which is a little bit of an echo of something that happens later that Don actually mentioned in his message. Because that gets flipped later, doesn't it? In the garden, Jesus is, is praying, he's, he's weeping, he's grieving because he knows the cross lies before him and he asks his buddies, the same guys that are in this boat, he says to them, would you stay awake with me and pray? And then they fall asleep. But they say to this, Save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now notice, he said to them, Why are you afraid? And then in the next sentence, the writer uses the word rebuked. And I think that the writer used it that way, as we see it in this translation, because he was, he was trying to communicate to us that the way Jesus said to that, why are you so afraid, oh you of little faith, we tend to read that as, and, and we tend to read that as, like Jesus, like, what's wrong with you guys? You're so dumb. And then when we read it that way, we cast ourselves in the story as, see, I would do that. Like, I would never have said to Jesus, dude, what's going on? Like, you're, you know, we're going to die, don't you care? And then I remember the circumstances that happen in my life sometimes when I look at God and I go, what are you doing? Don't you care? What's happening right now? Don't you care about me? Don't you care about them and what's happening to them? Can't you do something? But I don't think that's at all how Jesus delivered that line. Uh, in fact, I think we get a lot of them wrong in our brains when we think about the way Jesus spoke to people, spoke to the ones that he loved. Because remember, these are his friends. These are the ones he's investing in. These are the ones that, that he's going to entrust the gospel to when he returns to his place in the heavenlies. And I think if nothing else, like I think about many other places when Jesus speaks to them, what really comes out here is his heart breaks. Because he's, he's thinking about, man, we just came from these really cool circumstances, and you saw me do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and now all of a sudden you're like, you're worried about some, some waves and some wind. Man, I just don't get it. And so I think he spoke to them in a very genuine love. He said, Come on, guys, why are you so afraid? Why is your faith so small? 
And then the rebuke was not for them. The rebuke was for the wind and the waves. <laughs> I know we have in one account it says that he said, be still. I wonder if it was more like, knock it off. You know, not to the guys, remember, to the waves, to the wind. Cut it out. Settle it out. Sim it out. But the rebuke wasn't to those who expressed their fear. He challenged them, yes, and he challenges us, yes. But he always does that in love because what he wants us to understand is he doesn't want us to be shamed. He wants us to understand more fully who he is and what he can do. And ultimately his, his goal here was not to calm the waves and make them feel better. Right? Now he did that, but that plus really his purpose in doing it was not to make them feel better. His purpose in doing that was that they would understand who he is, and the next time there was a storm, they would just trust him. See, the, Jesus' expectation here is not that the next time there's a storm, oh, hey, Jesus, you know that trick you did last time? Let's turn that thing on again, would you? That's not what he's after. That's not what he's after in our lives. Sometimes we try to put, put God in that box. We see him work in one way, or we see something go the way that we think it should be, and, and our fear is alleviated about whatever that item is, and then we apply it to everything else, and we think it should all just be equal. But that's not what God is trying to teach us. He's not trying to teach us that he's at our beck and call. He's trying to teach us that he hears us, and he is with us. Whether the storm rages, or blows off beyond the mountains, it's the same. You see, it's not about the storm. It's not about the fear. It's about his presence with us. C.S. Lewis said about this passage in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear. He says, perfect love we know casts out fear, but so do several other things. Ignorance, alcohol, passion, presumption, and stupidity. See, we can look for the relief to the things that we struggle with and lots of other things and find some kind of relief. <coughs> but they're imitations of what we're really looking for. See, we can, we can run to, to the, what we think is the refuge of alcohol and, and numb our senses and numb our feelings, numb our perceptions, and whatever is, is then causing us to feel to flee, because that's it, right? Fight or flight. Whatever's causing us to want to flee, it's still there. And when the effects of that alcohol or the drugs or whatever else wears off, that thing is still there, and we've not resolved anything. It can be wrapped up in unhealthy relationships. Would you just be blissfully ignorant about our circumstance pretend like it doesn't exist whatever that thing is but what God offers to us instead is his presence with us which then becomes a persistent healthy 
spiritual response to things that give us pause, things that give us fear, things that uh, cause us to want to flee to things that we know are unhealthy and will just tear us down. Many of you have prayed with me for my friend Marty, a friend from high school who came and joined us here at Christ Community a little over a year ago. <coughs> Last summer, an incredible miracle happened. Uh, they have a young man in their house who needed a kidney transplant. And uh, to Seattle, and his mom actually was perfect donor, and this teenage strapping boy struggled with health issues all this time. And I'm not telling you anything that they would tell everybody else that's out there on Carrying Bridge and all sorts of places because they wanted to celebrate what God did. Uh, Shannon's mom gave him one of her kidneys, and the doctors did the miracle work that they do, and he just immediately began to thrive. I mean, unbelievable change. So excited. I saw him yesterday and his color and man, he looks amazing. It's tremendous. They're so excited. While they were there in Seattle, taking care of Ian, my buddy uh, Martin began to have some stomach pain. He says, ugh, I'm sick. I don't know what's going on here. Didn't go away, so he finally went to the doctor down there. And as many of you know, they diagnosed him down in stage four liver cancer. So they started some treatment and came home. And uh, went to see him Tuesday. A friend of mine, another friend of ours from high school was in town. Her dad had just passed. And he had this the funeral this last week. And she hadn't seen Marty in probably 30 years. And I said, well, let's go see him. Because I would go to Marty's house and visit him over the past several months and hang out with him there as he was going through his chemotherapy and all that stuff. We sat down. We had the best visit. It was fantastic. I mean, we laughed about a lot of stuff. Caught up on everybody's families and what was going on. It was absolutely tremendous. And I would say, through this entire process, uh, Marty would make updates on his caring bridge site about his treatment and what was new and what was different and what direction are things going and how are things happening. And, and man, his faith, unbelievable, huge. Um, every single time, just really blessing the things that God was, was doing and the things that God was helping them with and, and working things out. But the fact of the matter is that the treatment wasn't helping him get any better. And so about a week ago, he had a, another visit, you know, and the cancer markers were not really, actually the cancer markers went the right direction, but the tumor on his liver wasn't any better than it was. They were like, no, 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 what do you want to do? So he's like, uh, let's just quit the chemo. I'm, I'm just going to focus on prayer, mental health, good food, exercise, that's what I'm going to do. So we sat and visited Thursday, or Tuesday at his house. Uh, really fantastic. Um, Thursday we went to the hospital. Um, he's not coming home. I went to see him yesterday. And the cancer is just robbing him. And he's, he's, he's going. Unless there's a miracle. I've asked. Oh. Marty, to me, in the last several months has been 
an incredible picture of, of living in a circumstance that I guarantee you provokes a lot of fear for him and for his family and the ones who love him. But he has blessed the Lord at every turn. And he did yesterday, there in his bed, as we talked. God's promise to us is not to fix everything. I really want you to hear this because this, this messes up our lives so much. It ruins the way we interact and we think about God so much. He's not here to fix everything for you. He's here to be with you because everything is wrecked and everything is broken and everything gets messed up because this world is infested with sin. <clears throat> and we look at terrible things like Marty's disease, we look at terrible things like Parkland, Florida, and we think, oh, what's wrong with you? We're drowning!
The fact of the matter is, when it finally gets down to it, and we look at circumstances in our lives, we look at circumstances in the lives of others, we look at circumstances in our nation and across the world, and we say, why is this happening? Why isn't God doing anything? Why does this keep going on? The answer to that is because the world is filled with sin. People are evil. And without the perfect love of God, which they have to choose, we will always suffer from the things that are broken, from the things that are wrong. Is it fair? No. Will God be with you? Yes. Yes, he will. And I don't know anything we should desire more than for him to be with us. If we care about the world around us, we should be desperately trying to share with those that we care about and love and those who cross our paths the love of God so that he can be with them. Take your 
Vincent, I'm asking you to never, ever leave me alone. Let me know that you are near. In Jesus' name.